psalm entitled, For the Director of Music, a Psalm of David. O Lord, the King rejoices in your strength. How great is his joy in the victories you give. You've granted him the desire of his heart and have not withheld the request of his lips. You welcomed him with rich blessings and poured a crown of pure gold on his head. He asked you for life and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. Through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. Surely you have granted him eternal blessings and made him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord through the unfailing love of the Most High. He will not be shaken. Your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. At the time of your appearing, you will make them like a fiery furnace. In his wrath, the Lord will swallow them up and his fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their posterity from mankind. Though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed, for you will make them turn their backs when you aim at them with drawn bow. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your might. This morning I listened to the Gallic poet, I think Angus McNeil, I can't, it's McNeil and Mackay, being interviewed uh, by Richard Holloway who's no real friend of Christianity, and uh, he was asked about his upbringing in the free church on the island of Skye, and I waited for it with clenched teeth, and it came. Um, The caricature, which sadly has some element of truth in it, of dour, depressing, miserable, fearful. Uh, It was, it all came out, and um, It was very sad in many, many ways. Sad because uh, you can't just dismiss it as a caricature. Sad because of the lack of understanding as well. But the thing that really got me was when uh, Angus McNeil was speaking about, he said, it wasn't the fear of God. It was the whole idea of fear, but it wasn't the fear of God that bothered him. It was the fear that people had of themselves. Now, you can have a certain understanding of the Bible. Um, I hope, by the way, that you will come this evening. I was thinking about it. I thought, how do you advertise a service on what is sin? Because you're given a choice, some of you, and tonight you could be in the garden, you could be watching television, you could be out seeing friends, or have to go to the library and do some work, whatever. Um, And you've got that choice, or you can come to the chaplaincy center to hear about sin. And for many of you, that is not exactly the most attractive proposition, because we don't like hearing that. And we kind of know, even those of us who are Christians, we know, yeah, yeah, we know what sin is, and no, please don't hammer us about sin, and um, can we concentrate on something a little bit more positive? Um, I hope it doesn't sound too strange, but I actually think the Bible's teaching about sin is incredibly uh, positive, and I do hope that you will come this evening and uh, you'll see why because I think it's extremely realistic and because it shows us the remedy for, for sin. But you don't really get the, rem- the remedy unless you understand what the illness or what the disease is. But nonetheless, there is this kind of caricature that exists that people have of um, Christians and maybe especially Scottish Presbyterians being dour and miserable and 
You've got to be when you read the Bible. Isn't it terrible? And so on. Now, when you read Psalm 21, you find something that is very, very different. There are great reasons to rejoice. Let me put this another way. Um, in, back in my old punk days when I had hair, there was a band called Ian Dury and the Blockheads. It was just a great name. I see Hugh nodding his head and Stuart there, my fellow age-old rockers. But Ian Dury and the Blockheads had a song, Reasons to be Cheerful, Part 3. And already some of you are going, oh yeah, I know that. And it gives us the reasons. Some are body, Buddy Holly and things like that. Psalm 21 is the reasons that we have as Christians to be cheerful, to the reasons that we have to rejoice. Now, if we were able each right now to write down reasons that we have to be happy or reasons that we have to rejoice, uh, to count our blessings, some of us would be able instantly to list them. Others would say, well, actually, I'm really struggling with this right now. There's a lot of things that I, I don't find too many reasons to be cheerful. Well, I think that what we look at this morning is true always, and it's true for the Christian. We will go through periods of sorrow. We will go through periods of immense pain. We will go through periods of discouragement and depression. But when we look at the reasons that are given here for being cheerful, it, it's it's wonderful for us. And it's a paradox, because what we're going to look at, we're going to look at David's, the reasons that David gives. We're going to see how this is uh, pictured in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate king, because this is a song about the king, and then how that's reflected for ourselves as well. And when we take communion, what we're doing is we are remembering somebody's death, but it is a Eucharist. It is a thanksgiving. It is something that is immensely joyful, and I hope that you will be profoundly thankful for what the Lord has done for you. So, first of all, we look in verses 2 to 7, the seven reasons that there are to be uh, cheerful. The prayer has been answered of the king. The king rejoices in his strength. There is great joy. There's seven blessings, seven reasons to be cheerful. And as I say, the primary focus on this is going to be our reasons for being thankful in Christ and the reasons why Jesus Christ was thankful. An old Puritan called Isaac Ambrose said this, suppose all the sands on the seashore, all the flowers, herbs, leaves, twigs of trees in woods and forests, all the stars of heaven were all rational creatures and had that wisdom and tongues of angels to speak of the loveliness, beauty, glory, and excellency of Christ has gone to heaven and sitting at the right hand of his Father, they would all, in all their expressions, stay millions of miles on this side of Jesus Christ. So our primary reason for being cheerful and everything that comes, it, it is seen through the eyes and through the focus and through the prism of Jesus Christ. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're at the Lord's table. We're there in His name, not ours. And it's my prayer that we would see something of Jesus as we look at this. So let me just pray that. Lord, we ask that as we look at Your Word and as it speaks of David's own experience, that we would see reflected in it a greater King and a greater glory. And we pray, O Lord, that 
we ourselves would come to exalt and to rejoice with you in your glory and your joy. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Okay, I'm not obviously of time factor. We're not going to go into great detail with this, but if you keep your Bible open, you'll see the reasons that are given here. Number one, the reason David rejoices is because of answered prayer. Verse two, you have granted him the desire of his heart and have not withheld the request of his lips. There was heartfelt and real prayer, and David exalts that God has answered his prayer. It's a great thing when you get an answered prayer. It's a great thing when you write a letter and you get an answer back. It's one of the most horrendous things when you send someone a text, no one ever replies. You send out emails, no one ever replies. But to actually get someone, even even more, to get someone who who talks to you and who, who answers back, that is a wonderful, wonderful experience, especially when we are talking to God. And you see that in Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he cried out and he prayed with great effort to his Father. Father, take this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And he prayed in John 17 that God would be glorified. And Jesus, if you'll notice, Jesus, before he did anything that was of significance, he always went and prayed to his Father. Not one of Jesus' prayers were unanswered. All Jesus' prayers were answered, and all His work, I think, was accomplished through those prayers. And I think for ourselves, we need to heed what James says in James 4 verse 4, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your adulterous pleasures. One of the very simple reasons that you and I don't rejoice this morning is because we've not asked, and so we haven't received. And you have to ask. We need to, we come to prayer in God. We ask God to, you know, isn't it, isn't it surprising that we are surprised that God answers prayer? With all the promises that are there, with everything that is given, we, we miss out on it. You don't have because you don't ask. It is the number one tactic of the devil to prevent Christians or to discourage Christians or to distract Christians from praying to the Lord. Not praying as a work, not praying earning merit, but just coming to God our Father and asking. It is just such great joy to be able to know answered prayer, and you never know it unless you do pray. I think that maybe some of us here this morning, we've actually experienced answered prayer, and we forget. You know, we we remember the bad things that happen, we have plenty to moan about, but we forget the answered prayer. And as we come and we sit at the Lord's table, one of the things that we can rejoice in is that the Lord has answered prayer, and He continues to answer prayer. I was, with all the stuff that's going on in the church here, and all the different things, with all the, the pressures and burdens, if you like, people are saying, you know, do you think this is going to happen? And do you think, what will with this? Look, it's in God's hands. And we have nothing. And we ask Him. And we believe in a God who answers prayer. And we rejoice in that God who answers prayer. Number two, we rejoice because of the welcome that we get. Verse three, you welcomed Him with rich blessings. 
and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. The old English version has, thou prevents me. And that's the very idea. You know, when we do communion, we do fencing of the table. And the idea for us of a fence is to stop people getting there. Prevents has that same idea for us. You prevent something happening. But in the old English, both fencing and prevents, the idea was much more welcome. Welcome. It's, it's the door being open, not the door being shut. You prepare a table before me. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, what David is saying here is that he prayed to God, God answered his prayer, and God not only answered his prayer, but God answered his prayer by preparing blessings before he even asked. It was just there, it was done. Calvin says this, the king shall want nothing which is requisite to make his life in every respect happy since God of his own good pleasure will anticipate his wishes and enrich him with an abundance of all good things. Why do we pray? Do you think God is ignorant? Do you think God doesn't know what you need? Do you think God does not know about your heartache and your pain and your sorrow? Do you think God does not know about your temptations and your joys and your sins and your successes? God knows absolutely everything. And this is the great thing about prayer. You go to God in prayer and God has already prepared the answer. He set a table before us of good things. The crown of gold that's mentioned here, when Jesus came as the greater king, he was to be crowned. He ascended. We sang that in Psalm 68. He ascended into heaven. He is welcomed on the throne. He is crowned with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. He is in the midst of the throne. And we as believers, this is the great thing that we have, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you trust Jesus Christ, you are His brother and sister, and you, you already reign with Him. It's not as if you pray, oh God, help me in this, the, you know, I need the victory in this, I need this. It, it's already there for us as believers. We are already secure in His hand. We are already welcome. That's why you see, it was so sad that Angus McNeil's picture that he was given in the church growing up in Skye was that you needed to be afraid of yourself, not afraid of God, but afraid of yourself. What if you did this? What if you did that? How will God accept you? It is actually shockingly poor theology because being at the Lord's table or coming into God's presence is not ultimately tied to what you say or do. It is what Jesus Christ has done. Perfect love casts out fear, says John. And the Lord has this rich, rich welcome for us. You, I mean, you're a normal human being. I'm assuming most of us are here anyway, normal human beings. We like being welcomed. You know, you go to someone's house. Imagine you go to someone's house and, I mean, okay, I do this, but it's only a joke, See, honestly. When you say, oh, what are you doing here? Suppose you better come in. You don't exactly feel as though you're welcome. What do you want? We have this image of God sometimes, that it's as though God is, 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 has this door that's shut and he opens it a little. What do you want? Well, Lord, I've done this. Lord, I've done that. Lord, I've done this. Please let me in. And that is not the picture that exists 
in the Bible at all. There is a rich welcome that God gives to us. Then the third thing is there's eternal life. Verse 4, he asked you for life, you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. You gave him eternal life. Jesus, Romans 1, 4, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I read this yesterday morning, actually, and I just thought it was brilliant. Again, it's from Calvin, from his institutes. Accordingly, he alone has fully profited in the gospel who has accustomed himself to continual meditation upon the blessed resurrection. Let me say that again. You fully profited in the gospel. You've grasped the good news if you continually reflect and think upon the resurrection. Because in the back of my mind, I know that my body is decaying. Because in the back of my mind, I know that there is change and decay. Because in the back of my mind, I know that death is ever-present. And there is no way around that. And it's not miserable to say that. That is the reality. That is the world in which we live. That is the corrupt and bent and twisted universe as it's been distorted by sin. Death came through man. And yet, that's why in the forefront of my mind, I need to be thinking clearly and absolutely that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that though this body fade, yet it will be reconstituted in some way that I can't understand and I don't know. And that though I die, yet I will live forever as I belong to Jesus Christ. And when again, when we take the bread and the wine, the symbols of death, they are also the symbols of new life. You have eternal life. You, he asked you for life, you gave it to him. There are some of you who are not Christians, and you, you think, what do, how do I become a Christian? How do I have to do about it? it? I think it's beautifully summed up in verse 4. You go to God, and you ask him for life, and he gives it to you. He asked you for life, and you gave it to him. Number four, glory, splendor, and majesty. Answered prayer, a rich welcome, eternal life. Verse five, through the victories you gave, his glory is great. You've bestowed on him splendor and majesty. John, Jesus in John 13, 31 says this, now when he was gone, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. There's this fantastic glory that came to Jesus, yeah, to, to David rather, because of the victories that he was given as King David, but they are tiny and insignificant compared with the glory that's given to Jesus Christ through what he did on the cross. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. When you read through Revelation, as we were looking through the book of Revelation, one of the things that came up again and again and again is how the Lamb in the midst of the throne is the center in heaven. And there's this tremendous glory and this tremendous beauty and this tremendous majesty in Jesus Christ. And how does that work with us? Because we reflect it. We reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. We are being changed and we reflect His glory. We bask in His glory. Again, it's similar analogy to a sporting analogy. I mean, all the Irish people here last week, I mean, they're just desperately looking for people who are interested in rugby. We're not remotely interested. Uh, desperately looking to bask in the glory. You know, isn't it wonderful? And, and so, well, well, what did you do? Nothing. Just happened to be born Irish, which, 
I don't want to say anything, but <laughs> you, you know, people, but you can understand how they reflect on that glory. Well, when Jesus' glory, what did we do? Nothing. We're born again through God's Spirit. God has called us to Himself, and we share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Number five, verse six, surely you have granted Him eternal blessings and made Him glad with the joy of your presence. Here's another reason for us to be joyful. We have God's presence. It's the presence of God that brings vitality and victory. I say this many, many times. It is wonderful to see new people coming into church. It's wonderful to see the church growing and so on. But the energy and the vitality and the joy comes. That's really a a secondary thing. It's great to see. But what we need more than anything else is the presence of the living God. For Jesus on the cross, He accepted that He would be without that presence for a while. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in Hebrews 12 verse 2, we're told, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins, true. But there's a reason given here which is different from that, tied in with it, but different. Jesus died on the cross for the joy that was set before him. He endured Gethsemane because he knew there was a great joy coming. He scorned the shame of the the cross and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I wonder if we really do believe in a joyful Christ, a Christ who is exultant in joy, Why then do we not reflect that? Surely the more we know Christ, the more that that joy will be so much part of our lives. It is the joy of Christ. It is the joy of God's presence. And then, number six, the unfailing love of God. For the king trusts in the Lord through the unfailing love of the Most High. That's a great reason to be cheerful and to rejoice. Samuel Rutherford speaks of sailing to heaven in the ship of promise and longing for the day when she would sink forever in the ocean of God's love. And these guys were also poetic, you know. But I think I just think that's for me. That's just a wonderful picture. In First John chapter four, if you read the definition of love, is there? This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is love. He who lives in love lives in God, and so on. It's just absolutely fantastic that, again, no matter what your circumstances and what you've gone through in this week, if you are a believer in Jesus, then you have the love of God. You know the unfailing love of God. And that's why in verse 7, right at the end, is the seventh reason to be cheerful, is we have stability. You know full well that when football supporters sing, we shall not, we shall not be moved. That's just an omen for disaster. But for the Christian, when we're saying we won't be moved, we're not talking about ourselves. We're talking about the glorification of Jesus Christ. It is on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You see, so those reasons, those seven reasons that are there, what do you want? What do I want? be honest, I want to be heard. I want when I I talk. For 
someone to listen to me? Is there anyone listening? What a desperate life when you're talking and nobody's listening. When the only friends you've got are cyber friends. When no one listens to you. But God listens. I want to be welcomed. To, to have someone who will welcome you when throw, you know, slay the fatted calf for you and so on. Again, that's what God does. I want life. That's what God gives. I want to see and to be a part of the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what Christ offers. I want joy. That's what Christ gives. I want love. That's what Christ gives. I want stability. That's what Christ gives. And if you are a Christian, that's what you've got. And if you're not a Christian, that's what's on offer for you. Verses 8 to 12 then talk about something a bit more difficult. Your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes. But this is the contrast of the world in which we live because this is not just about fantasy. Oh, I really, really want this. I really like this. This is about reality. And in that reality, we're in a battle. And the Christian life is a battle. And it will be a battle until the day we die or the day the Lord returns. And what verses 8 to 12 are saying is that there is a total, supernatural, final, and irresistible victory that God promises us. And I'll just mention the three things. First of all, he talks about God's hand. Your hand will lay hold of your enemies. This is God action, God's action. People say, these are really three questions. Why does God not act? Why doesn't God, why do these bad things happen? Why is God not preventing this? Why is God not dealing with this? Why do I have to experience this pain or this sorrow or this loss or this persecution or this trouble or this illness? Why is God not acting? He does act and He will act. And sometimes we just don't see it. Uh, some of you know that I was in a debate with an atheist, the second part of which went out yesterday. I couldn't believe the guy said this. He said, I'd be like Bertrand Russell that if I met God, I would say to him, God, why didn't you give more evidence? Why didn't you say in Genesis 1, for example, that the world started with a big bang and so on? And my mouth was almost open. If it had been on television, it would have been horrendous because I was, I can't believe you just, as soon as he finished, I said, but I'm sorry, God did do that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What do you think was going on there? I mean, it's just quite extraordinary that people don't see things. And God's hand at work we may struggle to grasp and understand precisely why we face particular things. But God has acted in Christ, and He will continue to act, and Christ will return. Your hand will lay hold on all your enemies. Your right hand will seize your foes, the enemies of destruction and death and the devil. God has dealt and will deal with. Then God appears, verse 9, at the time of your appearing, you'll make them like a fiery furnace. People not say don't just say, why does God not act? They also say, where is God then? And they make all kind of jokes. When God does appear, my atheist friend won't be asking God questions, and Bert and Russell will not be asking God questions. Every mouth will be silent before him. He did appear in Christ. He will appear again, and there will be no jokey remarks, smart asides, or accusations, but every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will confess, calling upon the rocks to fall upon them, and others will confess, welcoming their Lord and Savior. Where is God? He's here. He has appeared in Christ, and in Christ He will return. And then verse 9 also, there's this 
difficult idea of the wrath of God. In His wrath, the Lord will swallow them up and His fire will consume them. That answers the question, does God care? Not just is God there, not just what does He do, but does He care? Yes, He certainly does, and the cross says that. The fiery furnace, you'll make them like a fiery furnace. In Matthew chapter 13 and verse 40, let me just read this actually, Matthew 13 and verse 40, we read this. As the weeds are pulled up, this is the parable of the weeds, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. You see, we kind of like this idea, don't we? That God, we have reasons to be cheerful because God has answered prayer and richly welcomes us and gives us eternal life and His splendor, glory, and majesty and the joy of God's presence and the unfailing love of God and the stability. We like that idea. But it only works when you fit it in the context of the reality of what's going on and God's passionate care and concern about the evil and distortion that is in the world. They plot evil verse 11, but they cannot succeed. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians 1 verses 5 to 10, where Christ, where it's, uh, Paul speaks of Christ returning in fire to cleanse, to renew, to punish, and to welcome His own people. We are in this battle this is a, a song of the battle. Psalm 20 is a song before the battle. Psalm 21 is a song during and after the battle. And for us, we, if, if you're a Christian, you have to grasp this. It is, it is tough. It is a fight. It is difficult. It's not, now I'm happy all the day. But in that battle and in that fight, it, it's not, the outcome is, is not doubtful. The victory is certain and is assured because it's absolutely tied in with Jesus Christ. And it means that the Christian life is one of complete paradox where we feel the pain, where we weep with those who weep, where we are confused, where we have lots of questions. But at the same time, because of Jesus and because of what He has done, there is this exultant joy and thanksgiving to God, which can never, ever be taken away, and which really is our strength. And it's my prayer that each one of us here would know that. Let's pray. Lord, bless Your Word to us. Help us to understand it and to apply it. Forgive us when we turn away from it, and enable us to know the, the joy and the blessings that You grant to Your people. And we ask it in Your name. Amen.